1: Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a sometimes Clyde Barker, all things Clyde Barker podcast. And we're firmly in Clyde Barker territory. I'm Joe, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Brian Christopher. Howdy, Joe. How's it going? You know what? Uh, No, I was going to make a joke and it was just going to come out really lewd because of the title of this text. So uh, (laughs) I'll just say I'm ready to talk raw with you, Brian. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so folks, we are talking about Rawhide Rex, which, of course, is one of the short stories in Books of Blood, Volume 3. And then it's also a film, question mark to some, that was uh, directed by George Pavlou and from a screenplay written by Clive Barker himself.
0: I, I think uh, – I feel like Patrick Hamilton from Kill by Kill has the best way to describe these kinds of things where it is definitely a movie. It uh-huh. is definitely – I think what is it? It is uh, a series of film cells uh, run at a certain speed to give right. the illusion of motion. So, yes, uh-huh. it, is, it is one of those. I think that is the – kill-by-kill description of a movie is the best one to use here.
1: (laughs) I mean, we're going to spend some time talking about the short story, because I think you and I both liked that. But when it comes to the film, I'm surprised. I thought that this film was pretty universally hated. And when I told people that I was watching it, I got a bunch of people who were kind of filled with glee that I was going to be going on this weird, wacky adventure. So (laughs) I can definitely say... I didn't mind watching this movie. I thought it was going to be abysmal and kind of unwatchable, and it turns out I think it actually has some good bones. It's just that they didn't have the budget or the ability to execute everything.
0: Yeah, I agree. The way I've heard people talk about Rawhead Rex, I thought this was going to be in like Troll Two category, Yeah, where it was that's just going to be too. just like absolute campy dreck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a perfectly serviceable creature feature which i think is probably like the greatest disservice you could do to a clive barker story to be perfectly (laughs) honest um
1: yeah and
0: and i think that's kind of the same way that that barker himself saw it like it it is it is so very middle of the road that it's just Mm -hmm. like there's nothing about this that you would see it and go this is based off of something clive barker did
1: no and and that is disappointing for folks like you and i right Mm mm-hmm so let's start with the short story so this is set in kent it's a uh, very much some folk horror we've got a farmer who is digging up a stone tablet so that he can expand the size of his crops and lo and behold he accidentally unleashes this centuries-old demon who the reason he has this name rawhead rex is because he looks like a giant raw phallus with mm-hmm. teeth and he's like nine feet tall He is the embodiment of the male sex drive, and he just rampages through this small town, killing, raping setting things on fire because he's not been alive in a while and he realizes oh new technology things go boom real good yeah yeah
0: <laughs> i love that whole thing too because there's like that element of because this is very this is clive barker really diving into full horror uh, mm-hmm. with both feet and yeah you get that clash because i think it even starts with this all kind of started because of how Kent is gentrifying with people right. from London coming out to live there. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of sets the stage for that's why this guy who unearths Rawhead Rex, like he's working his land so that he can make it more palatable for the people who are like coming out and get a better property value basically.
1: Right. And so yes. you know,
0: like, we're really establishing that clash of the modern and the pastoral. And, mm-hmm. The whole thing with rawhead Rex and the cars, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because I think, if I remember correctly, he first mistakes them as like beasts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's he's really paying attention to that clash of the uh, the modern versus the uh, the pastoral, and I think for the most part, I feel like that's lost in the movie.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the challenges with the film is that we don't have the luxury of knowing what Rawhead is actually thinking. Like, the short story is separated by a bunch of different perspectives. So we have a photographer who is there with his wife and kids. They're kind of on holiday, but he's an avid photographer and... You know, his son ends up getting eaten by Rawhead Rex. We've got a farmer and his pregnant wife, and Rawhead kills the farmer, and he tries to go and, and rape the wife, but when he discovers that she's pregnant, he immediately stops. So, like, mm-hmm. we're getting different perspectives and different experiences, like how people, I guess... uh
0: experience right? yeah i'm yeah. trying to
1: avoid saying the word again we get different experiences from people uh about how they interact with raw but then we're also getting his thoughts so what his experiences are like coming back into the world after such a long time being dormant and so we're getting these observations of what like a contemporary kent looks like mm-hmm. you know With the obvious caveat that when we say contemporary, we mean 1987.
0: Mid-80s, yeah. And I think, honestly, for me, that kind of hits the nail on the head about the thing that was the most missing is getting Rawhead's perspective. And I also think, I don't think that's necessarily a fault of the director. It's just an inherent It's an adaptation trouble, right? Like, yeah, you can't how do you inhabit the mindset of a creature like you can't uh-huh. i was i was honestly thinking about this before we started recording like how could they convey that like right. i feel like having this monster's inner monologue would be really hokey uh, uh, yeah. because to be perfectly honest they don't even really it's not even like a narration in the book it is a third person Mm-hmm. you know, omniscient narrator describing what Rawhead is thinking. And it's really yep. how do you convey that? Yeah, I think what they were trying to do, I think the the approach they tried to take was that by giving the main character Howard a little bit more backstory and making yep. him a historian, they tried to kind of frame that that way and try and give that kind of lore and exposition uh, through him. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that works as well as just kind of like seeing the world through Rawhead's eyes.
1: No. And I agree with you. I think that's why they make him more than just a photographer who's on vacation. Like he has a very dedicated purpose. He's investigating this church. He's looking into the history of paganism and how it's kind of been covered up by religion and so on. And I think that that's interesting. And yet, when I was watching the film, I just kept thinking, they're not really taking this far enough. Like, Mm -hmm. it it feels like it's not actually vital, to the point where when at the end of the film, Howard and his wife Elaine end up having to use this ancient stone, I guess it's a, a figurine of a pregnant woman that has been hiding inside the altar of the church. It feels more like they discover it by accident. Like, any character could have found it and wielded it and that seems like okay well why did this character need to be a historian then is it just so that he could unpack the meaning behind the stained glass windows which i don't know that you couldn't have found another way to do it
0: yeah yeah no it's I, th- <laughs> I i honestly think that that's what's lacking in in this is kind of a like a narrative push for any of this. it's uh-huh. um, There's a, a quote from, from Barker who talked about it. Uh, he said, uh, referring to the movie, I think generally speaking, the movie followed the beats of the screenplay. It's just that monster movies by and large are made by directorial oomph rather than what's in the screenplay. I'd like to think the screenplay for Rawhead Rex had the possibility of having major thrills in it. I don't think it was quite pulled off. So I, th- you know, I think what we're getting here is a really interesting example of, of a movie that, like, if you look on paper, it is taking the same narrative beats mm-hmm. as the short story. But it, it somehow, in depicting all of those narrative beats, it drains all of the themes and meaning. It dilutes them into just this creature feature that
1: doesn't have any of that stuff behind it that was what
0: made the story interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. and we should clarify that like the film is kind of a perfectly serviceable creature feature we'll yes. get to the creature design because obviously that is a huge point of contention for most well. folks and it deserves its own sort of separate conversation but you know when i was watching this i was thinking pavlo isn't bad director like there are different points where you kind of wish you could see things a little bit more clearly like the caravan attack is a really great set piece but i think it's a little bit too short and it's a little bit too dimly lit maybe i was just watching a bad cut on shutter as opposed to the the kino lorber blu-ray release which has maybe been brightened up a little bit but overall you know if you're going into this wanting to see a creature go around and rip people up, you are mostly getting that. It's just that you and I have like read this short story and it's visceral and it's mean and it's propulsive. Like it's all the things that we love about Clive Barker's writing. I think it's the best short story in volume three. Yeah. And the movie just feels a little too generic.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, some people, when they talk about Rawhead's design Like, it's low-hanging fruit in that it's Mm -hmm. obviously a dude in a big rubber suit. It doesn't look great. But I think it's more important in this context because when we're going to that Clive Barker flair, like, the way he describes Rawhead in the book is just, it's this just, like, rows of teeth. And just this, like, if you are in its clutches, you are immediately in pain. Like, it uh-huh. is going to just immediately start, like, just flesh is going to start to get rendered just because right. of the inherent nature of how this creature is built. Yeah. And if you're going to try and pull something like that off, you have to have the budget for it. And they just mm-hmm. don't here. And so that that is a big lacking thing. And it, it's important because it's not
1: just, like, an aesthetic quibble. It mm-hmm. is what changes the story. Yes.
0: Yeah. It's it's a very different vibe.
1: Yeah, I I wasn't able to find this on a kind of quote unquote reputable site, but I did see some people saying that the original budget was 2.5 million or maybe that's pounds, and Pavlo only found out like almost immediately before shooting began, that the budget had been slashed by a million dollars. The well. financiers weren't able to get it, and they just said, go ahead, make the movie regardless. Yeah. So I think that's part of the reason why the effect of the creature design is more underwhelming. Because overall, I mean, like, the acting is okay. You know, there's mm-hmm. good coverage. They, they clearly weren't skimping on certain things, but the problem is is that If this is going to be a creature feature, that creature either needs to look fantastic, move fantastic, or the gore needs to be fantastic. And this movie is very shy about its gore. Like, it's not particularly messy. Most often we're seeing people with some blood splatter or some lacerations. In the short story, when you read it, if you go up against Rawhead Rex you are decimated. Like, yeah. it's carnage. There's yeah. just body parts and viscera everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's it's that mean streak that, like, either because of budgetary concerns or maybe trying to keep this a little bit more mainstream mm-hmm. slash like get it by censors Like yeah. they couldn't, they couldn't go there. I do give them credit for the fact that they do keep that beat where the main character's son is actually eaten. Like that from was from a short shocked. story. Yeah. I, I thought for sure he was going to get away.
1: Me too. Mm-hmm.
0: I think the way they, they skirted that though, was that it happens off screen. Like yeah. it's, it's happening in the scene, but you don't see, it. you just kind of hear like the squelching of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was probably a censor decision more than anything, if I had to guess.
1: Yeah, because there's a scene in the, in the short story, if I'm not mistaken, I think the farmer and his pregnant wife, they had have another child yeah. and she gets eaten because Rawhead we, we hear in this omniscient voiceover that he loves children and babies, particularly because they're freshest, right? Yeah. They taste he calls the it best.
0: Baby flesh, which is such a like <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> but you know, the short story really tells you, oh, this thing gives no fucks. Like yeah. it will go after the most vulnerable people, except for pregnant women, because he does not like pregnancy. He he does not like menstruating women.
0: Yeah, it repels him. It's not that he's like That's not his area of mercy. It's that he can't like Mm -hmm. stomach it. It's his weakness. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But like everybody else is fair game. And I do think that the movie does that to a certain extent, right? Like we are killing teenagers. We're killing men. We're killing women. We're killing clergy. Mm -hmm. All of that kind of stuff is carried over because it's Clive Barker. So he's just adapting himself. He's not going to water that down too much. But you're right. The movie does censor itself by really moving a lot of that violence off screen. And then the gore effects that we do see feel either watered down or they're just being a bit more polite about it.
0: Yeah, and if I had to guess, I would say, like, you know, when he's talking, when, when Barker was talking about the lack of oomph, I can just mm-hmm. picture him watching, like, a screener for this, seeing right. the scene where the kid gets the killed. Fuck? But it ha- Yeah, yeah. It's like, ah, <laughs> you, you cowards. Like, yeah, I can picture him just, like, grumpily sitting in his chair and just watching this play out. Because, yeah, I think that's probably the oomph he was talking about. Like, I mm-hmm. went there in the screenplay. You should have gone right. there on screen.
1: Yeah, it is interesting too, right? Because so much of the short story feels like we're watching a town just completely under rampage, right? Like mm-hmm. the narrative is very brief. It takes place over maybe a couple of days. There's this rising urgency that nowhere is safe. Because, you know, as we said, if Rawhead wants to get you, a closed door or, a, you know, a couple of objects, a gunshot – that's not gonna stop him he cannot be denied so the movie doesn't have that same kind of urgency like there's almost a comical factor to how the police are just always one step behind at the crime scenes yeah but it doesn't create tension it doesn't create that sense of visceral thrill where you're just worried for everybody because this thing is just going to lay waste to this entire town
0: and there's also something interesting about like in most cases following the protagonists and having the, you know, the, the villain or the monster kind of like pop up is, is usually a safe bet in terms of creating those, that sense of tension. Mm -hmm. I I feel like the fact that in the short story, you're mainly following Rawhead Rex, right? It adds something to it. And it's hard to describe in terms of like why it's so effective. Uh, I think it's because it's subverting that idea of like, You don't know where it's going to come from. Mm -hmm. I think in the short story, it's like Barker's like, I don't care if you know where it's coming from. It's going to be terrifying and you are not going to stop it. And it's going to be horrific.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's also something scary about a monster who thinks. Like Uh we're so used to seeing monsters just lashing out and oh there's no rhyme or reason to it because they're animals and they don't have thoughts or feelings or intellect whereas in the short story it's very clear that rawhead knows what he's doing he's deliberate and intentional and he learns as the story progresses so yeah he thinks a car is a beast and then he tries to injure it and when it explodes he's like oh wait that was a machine how can i use this to my advantage and then he sets a police car on fire
0: Yeah. It's the toxic male id run rampant. You know, it's, I'm going to eat, I'm going to fuck, I'm Mm -hmm. going to destroy. Like, but it's not like, it's not just running on instinct. It is Mm -mm. deliberately thinking these things out to meet those ends. And it's, yeah, there's something pretty horrifying about that.
1: So let's change paces and talk a little bit about the church. Because of course, you know, we've alluded to the fact that there's a kind of altarpiece that can be used to destroy Rawhead that the town has been hiding. But we have a, a reverend who, you know, very much believes that the church is a safe haven, and he tries to use church doctrine to kind of like, oh, this is the house of the Lord, you can't come in here. And he has a sort of underling, Declan O'Brien, and... <laughs> I mean, spoilers for both the the short and the film, but Declan ends up getting corrupted by Rawhide. He ends up becoming an acolyte of his. And there's this really, I've gathered it's infamous for both the film, but I was more taken with it in the short story where he's almost baptized by urine.
0: Yeah, yeah. He he gets peed on real good. Um, (laughs) And it's played for... I think a bit of like a gag or I think it's like shock value gag, not necessarily Mm -hmm. for laughs, but like, Hey, check this out in the movie where, you know, you just see him kind of like unload on this dude. Right. In the book, I think there's like, there's this sense of surreal ecstasy about how it's like drawn out. It's not like a punchline. It is like, no, we're going (laughs) to pun intended, immerse ourselves in this scene. Mm
1: Well, it feels deeply sacrilegious, right? In the ways that we would come to expect from someone who would write The Hellbound Heart. Exactly. Yeah, no,
0: it's like you watch this. We are going to take an unblinking look at this very sacrilegious kind of iconography or, or symbolism.
1: I will say, though, like one of the things that surprised me was I I had a couple of people say, oh, what did you think of the scene where the demon comes on the guy? And I was like, no, no, that's piss. That's like they specifically say it's pee in the short story. But I've gathered that a bunch of people interpret that Rawhead is actually jizzing on Declan in the movie.
0: Like, I mean, I can I could understand that given like the the ecstasy that O'Brien uh-huh. is in when it's happening um but yeah I I don't know if I would if I would necessarily interpret that any other way than because you know with hindsight we know going in with the short story like uh-huh. I knew what that was right and I think I also heard like people talk about it and like offhandedly reference him getting peed on so right I, okay it's hard for me to be able to tell like you know, am I able to tell that just because of hindsight or is that something I would have taken? I don't know. Like looking back <laughs> on it, that's,
1: I just love the fact that we get to have, you know, a, a somewhat sustained conversation about key yeah. play. In was
0: this. It was it, a was it urine or semen. Oh, well, <laughs> let's talk about it. Let's roll up our sleeves. You know what? It's Clive Barker.
1: <laughs> We're talking about fluids. People yeah. just get used to it. Get comfortable with it.
0: <laughs> get comfortable with the discomfort. Cause that's where these stories live.
1: Indeed. Okay, so what about the end of this? Because the the short story ends up being more of a unified thing, right? Where the people of Kent have to come together when Rawhead is weakened. Yeah. And then they beat him to death collectively. And I found that very satisfying because it felt like everybody had a part to play.
0: Absolutely. Because he has taken from everybody in this town. Mm-hmm. And I really liked the, the symbolism of the idea of... You take from all these people and they will come back together and like be your demise. I I do think it was a lost opportunity to not take that. I actually thought that's where they were going because there was Uh a couple of scenes where it looked like like, the townspeople were gathering. So I thought that's where this was going to go. And I don't really see what reason they would have to not do that other than to possibly have – like a little wiggle room for that ridiculous stinger at the end where Mm -hmm. where he pops up out of the graveyard oh boy like i guess it would have been more definitive had they just had the the townspeople tear him apart but that would have been so much more satisfying
1: well it's weird to me that the film ends up using elaine so that's howard's wife so she's lost a child at this point. She has a young daughter that she's presumably left somewhere, maybe at the police station. <laughs> mm-hmm. But she ends up holding this, this effigy of a pregnant woman that they discover under the altar. And we get some very 1986-1987 special effects as, like, blue lights come out of this. And it yeah. activates the gravestones. And it imprisons Rawhead. And i can certainly appreciate what we're doing i don't think visually i think they think it's far more exciting than it actually is but maybe that's just because we're looking at it in hindsight but i'm so confused at the decision to make this a specifically gendered response like howard literally says it had to be a woman yeah
0: especially in a movie where you've not really given women any agency no. up until this
1: point and, and Rawhead has not been raping women, and he doesn't have a giant phallus, so he's not really the embodiment of that male rage and sex drive.
0: Yeah, well, it, it's, I don't know, it, it, it's forcing something that just actually, I think, detracts from, <laughs> from mm-hmm. the overall story, uh, because it's presenting something at the very end that doesn't really, nothing up until that point has been earned.
1: Yeah, it's a big, wait, what? Why? Kind of moment. Like, the film has not laid the groundwork for this at all.
0: I do feel like the one thing they they did get right for me is, like, exactly the way I was picturing the little stone statue. Was mm-hmm. exactly what it
1: wound up looking like in in the movie. <laughs> A featureless pregnant woman.
0: Very rarely happens. But yeah, that was exactly what I was picturing. So I don't know. Um it was uh that was the one thing that I took note of. In an ending where I think they got everything else wrong, that was the one thing that I felt like they they uh lined up with the uh the short story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned we've got this stinger at the end. Mm. Do you think this is just, oh, Carrie did it, we should do it too?
0: Yeah, no, it's just kind of going back to that idea of like they're taking this mean, in some ways kind of darkly comedic, clive barker short story and turning it into something more mainstream like mm. this is also a movie that had a grat- gratuitous topless scene halfway oh my through God. um during an attack like it's just very like i don't know if they were maybe trying to use that as an excuse for like you know rawheads attack against women mm-hmm. but to me that just rang of like you know what this movie needs tits
1: like right
0: it was just very that did not need to be there at all
1: well, and particularly, sure, if you want to say, well, there's there's evidence of this kind of stuff happening in the short story because Rahad does rape women, mm-hmm. okay, fine, but he also castrates a police officer, so why don't we then get to see some guy get his balls ripped off?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it was very, just like, this was very mid-80s creature mm-hmm. feature decision making.
1: Yeah, yeah. So do we have any final considerations about the costuming for Rawhead? I know we've touched on it a little bit, how they probably didn't have the money to do this right. But I do feel like this is the biggest sticking point for most people when they watch this movie. You know, he's meant to be nine feet tall. The actor is... Um, It's Heinrich von Schlellendorf, and he is apparently six foot 11. So he is a very tall dude. And then I put this extra costume on him. I think the biggest problem is that it's too fixed, right? Like it's a one piece mask. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have any mobility to it, except in the eyes, which look very Halloween costumey. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, this this screams rubber mask Uh, i I did i did appreciate kind of like the punk rock aesthetic of like his outfit the mullet yeah the mullet (laughs) and like his his clothes i think there was something there but it just it's distracted when your focal point is this very fake looking monster head Uh, Mm -hmm. and for me i think that the biggest thing for me for that was the teeth
1: like it was just very
0: clunky it was very like it just wasn't elegant at all you know Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest complaint it lacks that Clive Barker elegance you know anything he depicts is going to be like ungodly and horrific but there's also going to be like this strange beauty about it or something will capture your imagination and I think that's just completely lost with the way the Mm -hmm. face came together for that design
1: yeah I'll agree I really hope for more from the teeth I wanted them to be Massive and just like rows of them, almost like a shark or something, because that's that was really the impression I got from the writing. And even just this idea that. It feels like more often than not, Rawhead is killing people by biting them in the neck with these teeth. Whereas in the short, you know, he's fully using his his claws and his amazing strength to just rip people apart and stuff like there's there's quite a bit more variety in the damage that he does in the book. Whereas the film, it feels so constrained to what we can do with this one mask.
0: Yeah. In the in the story, he plays with his food, basically, like he that's part of his enjoyment, like it's almost part of the ritual, like Mm -hmm. eliciting as much pain as he possibly can from someone before devouring them. And even the sense of devouring them, like I almost got the sense of like when he's done, there's nothing but maybe a couple of bones left. You yeah. know it, in the movie, he's leaving like bodies left and right and they're, they're uh-huh. mutilated. but like, you know in the in the story, I'm just picturing like him literally like picking those big teeth of his with somebody's like femur or something like that. right. Yeah, there's not much left in the
1: story. And we are not getting that in the film at all. No. Like, at one point, somebody's body is discovered, and it looks like they maybe have a tiny little mark on their abdomen. Yeah. And everybody, <laughs> I think one character even says, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's just like, okay, well, as a horror movie fan, unfortunately, I cannot say the same.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, even within the movie, though, like, they're, they're so horrified by that, and then, like, you know... Within the same scene, I will say I did appreciate when the, like, the two kind of, like, lovers, Lane partners, mm-hmm. uh, the when the guy gets killed, that one's pretty gnarly in terms of, like, it looks like they probably used some actual organs, like, maybe, like, animal organs or something like that, because mm-hmm. they have something where it looks like he's been, like, fully opened up, and I think that's at least getting close to what you're getting in the story, but I think even that, like he's eating these people like why is so much left (laughs)
1: yeah they should be missing whole sections of their bodies yeah 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 i actually did think one of the most effective scenes we we've been a little down on the film so i do want to give it credit i don't think it's scary but there are a couple of sequences that i think are very effective that caravan attack i think is pretty good the church stuff is okay at the end it's not my favorite but um I did like when the lovers are running through the woods and you're just waiting for Rawhead to jump out at some point. You don't uh-huh. know where. Yeah. And I like that we get to see the glow of the red eyes before he kind of steps out into the open.
0: I did also appreciate uh, you get a, a few POV shots from Rawhead's perspective, mm-hmm. uh, which had that kind of crazy kinetic energy of like when you're following like the uh, the demonic entity uh, in the Evil Dead. Like I was right. getting vibes of that. And I really mm-hmm. I, I did like that. Yeah, it's, it's another one of those instances where it's probably important that we uh, clarify, I didn't see this as a bad movie. I yeah. just saw this as a bad adaptation. Like, this was not what was being conveyed in the short story, but it is entirely competently made. Like, it's yeah. not like a bad movie. It is just, uh, it's almost like, for me, it's the worst case scenario where it's just kind of like this middling creature feature. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, part of you almost wants it to be this over-the-top horrible thing that at least it's like, hey, can we all talk about how crappy that was? This was just like a completely serviceable movie that just didn't do service to the source material.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you haven't read the short story, I could imagine watching this and being perfectly satisfied with it it's a man in a suit like if you watch any of the creature features from the 50s a lot of them look like this where you know if you've seen any of the creature features from the 1950s a lot of the time it's we're going to explore a new world and it's a man in a suit with a big head or something we've seen these kinds of things before so i was actually really surprised at just the outright hatred of this creature design Because I think if you don't know what he's supposed to look like, this looks clumsy, but it's not horrible. Like in our in our notes, you wrote the Rotten Tomatoes score is twenty nine (laughs) percent with an average score of four point four out of ten. Like, I don't think this movie's great, but like I gave it a two and a half out of five because I didn't regret watching it. It's just not my new favorite movie.
0: Yeah, I think that's about where I would give it to. It's just a very like it is the definition of average
1: yeah yeah so i don't know i mean I'm, i'd am i be curious to hear from people if you really like this movie do you find it campy do you find it fun and playful are there things that we didn't talk about that you think are things that elevate it and if you do hate it is it just because of the mask is it because you've read the short and you think it is a bad adaptation which i think brian you and i would agree with yes yeah
0: mm-hmm. yeah i think that's a big thing i would be interested in. like folks Regardless of your opinion, I'd like to hear uh, in regards to have you read the short story either before or after having seen the movie? And did that influence your opinion in any way? I think that would be an an interesting conversation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because when we talked about this with the Horror Queers Book Club people, we had all obviously read the short. And then the people who had watched the film were pretty disappointed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Here's the thing. If for no other reason, we should celebrate this movie because, of course, Clive Barker infamously was so unhappy with the adaptation that it's because of this he decided he would be the one to adapt the Hellbound Heart. And for Mm -hmm. that, we get Hellraiser. Which I
0: also love the, like, when you think about the timeline on that. Like, Mm -hmm. this is all stuff that happens over the course of, like, two years. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, he, the broadhead Rex comes out, he dislikes it so much that he's like, I'm going to direct my next feature. If I understand mm-hmm. things correctly, he specifically wrote The Hellbound Heart in order to, like, make a movie out of it. So, like, like his his disc, he goes from discontent to... Going to write my own novella, and I'm going to take this novella, and I'm going to make a movie out of it, and like all that happens over the course of like a year and a half, two years. That's yeah, crazy
1: to me. Like, it is wild.
0: The timeline you're looking
1: at to make what is both of our favorite movie of all time. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of like the big ultimate fuck you, right? Oh well, I don't even know how to make a movie, but I'm going <laughs> to do it better than the people who have tried to do it in the past because clearly yeah. they know shit.
0: I'm literally loaning books from the library on how to direct movies. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to make this timeless classic.
1: Well, and he clearly also knew, okay, when you make a horror movie with creatures, you need to make them look great. So he elected to spend a large portion of his budget and or get his financiers to cough up more money Uh to make those special effects great. Paid off. (laughs) Paid (laughs) off. To say the least. Oh, man. Yeah, I could have done with some of the Frank reanimation magic in Rawhead. I, yeah. I did feel that. That spark was missing. Yes.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: All right. Well, Mr. Brian, we're going to continue on this adventure, but we are going to take a slight step away from Mr. Barker for our next piece. Before we say where we're going next, though, how can people get a hold of you?
0: You can find me on Twitter, as always, at Hicks
1: nice and i am at b still my remote and that's the letter b make sure that you're liking subscribing rating reviewing all the things on the anatomy of a screen pod squad network because of course they are hosting the show and uh mr brian we will be back next month we're finally going to cross off another long requested item mm-hmm. so we're going to check out mr peter Atkins. I guess it's a screenplay. I keep wanting to call it a book, but it's a screenplay (laughs) published as a book on Hellraiser Bloodline. So what Mm. it was originally meant to be that infamous Kevin Yeager cut.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, maybe the closest we get to hashtag release the Yeager cut.
1: My God, please. Um, And I think you and I have already previously agreed that we're just going to rewatch the movie because it's a good excuse to do so. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No question. So Hellraiser Bloodline. That's what we're talking about next time. Everybody go out and check out that book so that maybe we get some more secrets and or somebody realizes, oh, people give a shit about Hellraiser Bloodline.
0: Yeah, let's make some noise.
1: (laughs) There are dozens of us.
0: (laughs) We are maybe not Legion, but we're (laughs) there's there's we're here. (laughs) Damn it.
1: Yeah. Look, there's more of us than Rawhead Rex has teeth. (laughs) A low bar, but we've cleared it (laughs) I'll take it
0: squad.